Greetings. This is Bible Time with Jane, and I am Jane, your host. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we will take a look at Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. We've been journeying with Paul since his conversion while on his way to Damascus many years previously. And after these many years and three missionary journeys, which included both joys and sorrows, Paul decided to visit Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. However, before the week had ended, he was accosted, arrested, threatened with a plot to kill him, and had taken to Caesarea in chains where he was to stand trial before Felix, the procurator of that region. This is where we resume the account of Paul's first trial. And there will be two more to follow, one before Festus, and finally one before King Agrippa II. Let us turn now to our Bibles. Acts chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. Now after many days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullius. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullius began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear, by your courtesy, a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him, and the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. From our pre previous lesson, we learned that there had been a group of 40 men who had made a vow that they would not eat anything until they killed Paul. They had enlisted the help of the high priest, elders, and members of the Sanhedrin toward that goal. So the high priest sent a message to the commander Claudius Lysias, requesting that he bring Paul to the hall of the Sanhedrin for further questioning. However, Paul's nephew overheard their plan and was able to alert Paul and then the commander of the plot. Therefore, Claudius Lysias gathered 500 soldiers and brought Paul to Caesarea so that he could stand trial before Felix. As we closed our last session, we read that Felix agreed to hear the case whenever Paul's accusers came to Caesarea to personally present before him their charges against Paul. In our passage before us today, we read 
that it took five days for Ananias, the high priest, certain elders, and a lawyer by the name of Tertullius to travel the 60 miles to Caesarea. Upon their arrival, they were granted an audience with Felix. So Paul was brought to them, and the trial began. Tertullus was the first to speak as prosecutor, and what he had to say is very interesting, but not very accurate at all. The first thing he did was to flatter Felix with grandiose words and accolades. This was a common practice in Rome. It is what a specific part is when presenting a case for the prosecution, and it was used in, in to, uh, order to gain good favor with the judge or ruler. But what Tertullius was said regarding Felix was about as far from the truth as could be. It was actually a sickening form of extreme flattery. The first thing Tertullius said was that under Felix's rule in that region, uh, they had enjoyed great peace and prosperity. However, the truth is that while Felix had put down several insurrections, he had done that with such barbarous brutality that he earned for himself the honor of the horror of the Jewish population and not their thanks. In fact, as one commentator writes, in reality, there had not been peace, but violence. Tacitus, a historian, he wrote, the Romans create a desolation and call it peace. Felix's foresight was basically nothing more than his political maneuvering to enhance his position in Roman power politics. His reforms consisted of little more than lining his own pockets at the expense of his subjects. There was nothing excellent about the way he was ruling, nor had the Jews ever been grateful for anything he had done. Well, in the midst of his discourse, Tertullius referred to Felix as most noble Felix. And this also was just pure flattery. Dr. Ironside points out that he was anything but noble, this governor, a most ungodly man, one whose whole life was a reproach to the high office which he held. It was at this point that Tertullius accused Paul of three specific charges. And let me read each one in order and discuss the charges one by one. First, he says, we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Actually, hmm, I think this might be a twofold charge. First, Paul is accused of being a plague or a pestilent person. This charge was designed to persuade Felix that Paul was causing sedition against Rome. This was further designed to cause Felix to feel very nervous about this man before him, because if there was one thing that Caesar would not tolerate, was any kind of seditious activity that would lead to a violent uprising. I like what Dr. Warren Wearsby has to say about this. 
He writes, As for Paul being a pest, it all depends on one's point of view. The Jews wanted to maintain their ancient traditions and Paul was advocating something new. The Romans were afraid of anything that upset their delicate peace in the empire, and Paul's record of causing trouble was long and consistent. As Vance Havener used to say, wherever Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival. Then Tertullius added that Paul was not just creating, but was the instigator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Dr. John Stott explains, this was a serious accusation because of its political overtones. There were many Jewish agitators at that time, messianic pretenders who threatened the very peace which Tertullus was attributing to Felix. You know, these charges were very similar to the charges that were brought against our Lord Jesus Christ at his trial. Do you remember what they said? Let's take a look at that. In Luke 23, verses 1 through 5, it says this, Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him, Jesus, to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people teaching them throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. As you know, just because there are charges, they are not always accurate or true. In his trial, Paul shared in the sufferings of Christ. Both men were accused of stirring up people all over the world. For Jesus, His ministry was pretty much localized in Judea and Samaria, although his reputation was beginning to spread. For Paul, while it is true that his influence was very broad, it had not yet spread to the entire world, and also his ministry was primarily to the Gentiles, although many Jews heard about Jesus from him. Well, let's move on to the second charge that was leveled against Paul. Tertullus continued, saying that Paul was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now this charge was political in nature. In Rome, only the religions that were sanctioned by Rome were allowed to be practiced. At that time, those who followed Jesus and the Christians were considered to be an offshoot of Judaism. And Judaism was a recognized religion in the Roman Empire. The Life Application Bible Commentary gives us an excellent explanation of the implications of this charge. The second charge, that that of Paul's leadership of a Nazarene sect, of course, referred to the Christians, named here after Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. 
The Greek word translated sect is heresios, literally a faction or party, from which comes the English word heresy. Tertullius was attempting to distance Christianity from Judaism since the latter religion was allowed by Rome. If Felix would not prosecute Paul on the basis of his disruption of peace, maybe he would do so if Paul were seen as a leader of a religious sect or cult that was not sanctioned by the state. Surely Tertullus was using the term to put the church in its more controversial light. Dr. Warren Wearsby adds the following. Tertullus knew that there was some basis for this charge because Paul had preached to the Jews that Jesus Christ was their King and Lord. To the Romans and the unbelieving Jews, this message sounded like treason against Caesar. Furthermore, it was illegal to establish a new religion in Rome without the approval of the authorities. If Paul indeed was a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes, then his enemies could easily build a case against him. Well, we'll, we'll have more to say about this when Paul gives his defense, but so let us continue now to the third and final charge, and it was this. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law, but the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. This final charge completely misrepresented what had happened in the temple court. Let's break it down step by step. It is cleverly worded to persuade Felix to allow the Jews to put Paul to death. Although Rome held ultimate judicial authority throughout the Roman Empire, there were certain things that the Jews still have a measure of authority over, and profaning the temple was one of them. If Felix agreed that Paul was guilty of this charge, then they had legal authority over Paul to put him to death. However, did you notice how Tertullius completely turned the events of what took place upside down? He said that the Jews had seized Paul, when in reality they were beating on him trying to kill him. He said that the Jews want to judge him according to their law, in other words, that they wanted to peacefully detain him until they could question him. If that were true, they were guilty of more aspects of the law than Paul was being accused of, and peace had nothing to do with it. And then they accused Lysias, the commander, of to take, taking Paul from them violently, while in reality it was Lysias who rescued Paul from the violence of the mob that sought his death. And then, with a sneer in their voice, they accused Lysias of insisting on having Paul's accusers travel all the way to Caesarea to present their accusations to Felix. And I'm sure that they were implying that by this action, they were required to waste Felix's valuable time with something that they should have been able to take care of themselves. Once again, we turn to the observations of Dr. Warren Wearsby, 
who brings an interesting perspective to this third charge. He writes, To begin with, he softened the charge. The accusation given by the Asian Jews was that Paul had polluted the temple. That's Acts 21-28. But Tertullus said he even tried to profane the temple. Acts 24-6. Why the change? For at least two good reasons. To begin with, Paul's accusers realized that the original charge could never be substantiated if the facts were investigated. But even more, the Asian Jews who started the story seemed to have vanished from the scene. And if there were no witnesses, there could be no evidence. It is actually very interesting to compare Luke's account of Paul's arrest in Acts 21, verses 27 through 40, with the account that Claudius Alysius writes in Acts 23, verses 25 through 30, and contrasting that with Tertullius's account recorded in Acts 24, 6 through 8. Mm, how easy it is to be persuaded if one is not careful. The observation has been made that Tertullius's ac accusations seemed compelling. His case against Paul appeared to be up airtight, and a parade of other prominent Jews corroborated his version of the events. Yet, Tertullius was not being truthful. Paul had never disturbed the peace, though his enemies had, everywhere he went. And Paul had never even spoken ill of the temple much less attempted to desecrate it. These false charges remind us not to believe everything we hear. People, even apparently believable and re reputable people, often misrepresent facts and distort truth. Hear both sides of a story before you present your opinion. And so it is with this that Tertullius concluded with the following statement. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Oh, yes. Ananias, the high priest, the elders and spiritual leaders, were very eager to affirm all that this brilliant attorney had presented to Felix. Shame on them, because they were very much aware that the entire account was filled with lies and misrepresent, misrepresentations, and all for the end result of the death of the Apostle Paul. So with this final statement, Felix gave Paul the opportunity to defend himself against the charges that had just been presented. And we will pick up Paul's defense in our next session. But I would like to take our final time together today to respond to what we have just studied with a biblical perspective on this situation. Because we live in such a day when you might experience having false accusations raised against you. And what does the Bible have to say about this? 
First, I want to remind you of what Jesus told his disciples to expect on the night that he was betrayed. He said in John 15, beginning with verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Remember, Jesus is our great example. If the world hates him, they will hate the ones who love him and those he loves. They accused him with lies and vicious slander. They beat him without cause. They tried to trap him with unreasonable questions that had only one purpose, to destroy his testimony and teaching. But Jesus resisted them with the power of the word of God and with truth. Jesus also taught this in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and to say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is sometimes hard to remember and obey. There's a blessing for you when you suffer for righteousness' sake. In the epistles, it is often referred to as being counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. It is actually an honor to share in his sufferings, as it is written in Philippians 3.10. And we know from other passages of Scripture that when we are persecuted in this way, we are to pray for our persecutors, to bless and not curse, as it says in Romans 12, 14. And then we have this further teaching from the Apostle Paul, who was an expert on how to respond to persecution. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 5, he writes this. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed, 
We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Remember, my friend, that even in our suffering, God is glorified. It is not a judgment on you. It is Satan pouring out his hatred of God on those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is why Paul could say in Romans 8:18, 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory with which shall be revealed in us. But for today, my friend, perhaps you are suffering or have just come through a period of time when you have been wounded and broken in body or in spirit. Suffering is not easy to go through. But even in this, God gives us words of comfort in his Bible. And it is at such times we open our Bibles often to one of David's Psalms. David understood unjust suffering and persecution so well. And he has given us many words and prayers that seem to flow from out of our own hearts. So today, for today, let me close with one of David's Psalms, Psalm 143. And let's use this psalm as our own prayer. And as you pray, may the words of this psalm bring you comfort and peace. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness, answer me. And in your righteousness, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God.
Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O God, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, if you are finding these messages helpful and encouraging, or if you have a question that you would like to ask, please feel free to email me at BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. That's all one word, lowercase, BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. So until next time, my friend, trust in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. And remember that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God bless you, my friend.